You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me today. Something you see every day in the Israeli newspapers, and it shows up a lot on the uh, social media, is that a lot of the leftist Israeli entertainers, they're like seeing the light now after October 7th. They're saying, wow, we were cheated. We were robbed, man. We were, we were wrong. All leftist ideology was wrong. And you have some famous um, entertainers and singers and TV personalities who are coming out and saying that. I guess it's expected and people are happy about it. I'm thinking something else to myself. I'm saying, why were you so stupid before this? I mean, you needed this to know that? You needed this massacre to know that giving up land to the Arabs is stupid? But never mind that. Now, it's not that everybody's done shuva here. For instance, the people on those kibbutzim, the same ones who got massacred, the ones near Gaza, a lot of them are maintaining their strong leftist ideology. I want to quote one of their spokesmen. His name is Professor Elit Sur from Kibbutz Tzikim, where about 35 civilians and soldiers were murdered there. And this fellow, Professor Tzor, he's a researcher of Zionist history, and he's a leftist. He teaches at a Tel Aviv college called, called HaKibbutzim, and he adds all kinds of institutions here and there. He used to teach at Haifa University, a typical academian. Listen to what he says now. And I quote him from a article on Channel 14 that was broadcasted on a Zoom conference. He said like this, eliminating Hamas is a given. But what's needed to save the country is eliminating religious Zionism. And he depicts the religious Zionists and the Haredi public, they're the ones who are the real enemy. He describes the religious Zionists and Haredi as the Jewish Hamas, the disease of Israeli society. He says like this, eliminating Hamas is a given. What is needed to save the country is to eliminate the group of religious Zionists to eliminate the Haredim from the country. He says, we have to get rid of the Zionists and the Haredim, and if we don't succeed, then the end has come for Zionism as we know it. And I'm sure the end of the state of Israel will come as well. And then there's Naamika Tzion. She's the granddaughter of this known uh, leftist Mapam leader. And she's from a kibbutz in Starot. And she said in that same conversation, she says like this, I'm worried about where we're going. Are we approaching a process of Nazification? that will take over Israeli society, of messianism, of militias run by Ben Gvir and Smotrich. And she also uses the term the Jewish Hamas, right? And she says, we are entering the battle of our lives. And I quote her, will Israel be a Channel 14 state? Channel 14 is like the Israeli version of Fox News. They're the only right-wing station out there. Will Israel be a Channel 14 state? Or will it be led by liberal democratic forces? We are entering the battle of our lives. So, of course, we don't expect everybody to change their ideology overnight. And ideology is not something you change very easily. That's something I've noticed. Even very religious Jews, especially religious Jews, who are invested in an ideological, in an ideology, in a particular worldview. And, of course, because they're religious, they're basing it on Torah, on sources. And they have this worldview in general about the land of Israel, what to do with the enemies of Israel. These people will never change. They're never going to change their ideology because they put so much into it. Now, we're talking about, you know, very humble people here. We're not talking about arrogant types who are stubborn in their nature and can't admit they're wrong. But the thing is, when it comes to changing your ideology, the humility goes out the window. And so nobody wants to admit they're wrong. 
And so the last ones to admit that Rabbi Gahana was right are the religious Zionists who never agreed with Rabbi Gahana. They're the last ones to admit it because they're invested in another ideology of Zionism about waiting slowly, slowly, that only the sovereign body is allowed to do things. And if they're not doing the right thing, we got to respect them because it's Malchut Yisrael. If you ask them, well, what about the Arab danger? They'll say something like this. Don't worry about that. Once the Jews know that it's their land and they're educated properly and we know it belongs to us in our own hearts, the Arabs will leave on their own. They say things like that. And it's not just them. You see, when you're invested in ideology, that's like your neshama. You put your soul into it. That's what you are. And I have a brother-in-law, for instance. He's a um, really humble person. He's the most humble person I ever knew. Totally humble. But he comes from the Beit Midrash of Haramor under Raf Tau. And they're always talking about the redemption is coming and everything's going to be okay. And he lived smack in the middle of Gaza, the settlement of Nitzarim. It's not like Nevei Tekalim or these other settlements that were kind of the periphery of Gaza. This was in the middle of Gaza. You need a escort from the soldiers to live there. Anyway, he was always very optimistic. Everything's going to be okay. Yetov, Yetov. The government of Israel will never throw us out. There won't be another Yemit. The Arab problem, it's not going to escalate. They'll, they'll leave on their own one day. We just have to increase our Jewish presence. That's what most of the religious Zionists say. And so because he's my brother-in-law, you have family gatherings and at the Shabbos table. And we would speak what we call, you know, politics, right? And we'd have some heated arguments, you know, kind of what probably happened this past Thanksgiving when you're sitting with your family and you have all these liberals in your mishpacha who hate Trump. That's why the best thing is just to avoid these subjects. So, you know, everybody could just get along and you could get through the meal. But we would argue and then we stopped arguing because, because what are we going to argue about? I mean, I'm not going to convince him. I was warning that the way things are going, he's going to be dragged out of Gush Katif, which he was, and that the Arab terror is just going to escalate. And he's always like, why are you so pessimistic? Yeah, Tov, everything's going to be wonderful. Now, again, this is a humble, humble person. Wonderful Midot, much better than mine. But he'll never admit he was wrong because that means everything that he stood for all these years has been wrong. I mean, it's not like when you're admitting you're wrong about the quarterback of the New York Jets, you thought he was good, but he really stinks. Something like that, it's easy to admit you're wrong. But when you're talking about ideology, this is your philosophy of life that you put a lot into it. This defines you. I, for instance, would never admit Rabbi Gahana was wrong because I've invested so much into it. And so I'm the same way. I'm not going to change my ideology. But you know, the difference is Rabbi Gahana wasn't wrong. He was right. But it truly is rare for that individual to flip his hashkafa, his worldview, unless he's the kind of person who didn't invest that much into it. That is, he wasn't that interested in that kind of stuff. He was interested in other things. A person like that is more open. And that's why a secular Jew will have a lot easier time in changing his ideology or admitting, for instance, that, yeah, you know, Rabbi Kahana was right. If you spent most of your life hating on Kahana or thinking that anybody who says stuff like that is a racist and a fascist and against Judaism, you're not going to suddenly turn around and say, you know what, I was wrong all these years. You'll just justify it till the end of time. And just to give an example from the Bible, the first king of the 10 tribes, his name was Yeruvah ben Nevat. Yeruvah ben Nevat. And he was anointed by the prophet to be the king of the 10 tribes because he really was an extraordinary Jew, great in Torah, very courageous. But very quickly, he strayed from the past. He went off the derech and he used his brilliance to make reforms in Judaism. He invented holidays. He changed the laws of the priest and Torah. 
And he goes down in the books as being a very wicked king. But apparently God saw his potential. And it says in the Midrash that one day he called out to Yeruvam and Nevat and he said to him like this, Yeruvam, Chazor Becha, Vani, Vata, Uvenishai, Nitael Began Eden. If you do tshuva, if you change your ways, then me, you, and the son of Yishai will walk together in the Garden of Eden. I'll say that again. Hashem told him, change your ways, and me and you and the son of Yishai, which is David, of course, will walk in, will walk together in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden. And Yeruvam heard that, and he said, me Barosh, who did you say comes first? That is, Hashem said, me and you and Ben Yishai will walk in Gan Eden, and Yeruvam was worried that Ben Yishai, that David, was going to be before him. Anyway, that's to show the ego, the arrogance. It's so hard for somebody to change their ways, to change their philosophy of life. Because it's not really their ways, but it's their philosophy of life. It's the creed they live by all these years. Turning back to the news and the war, everybody you talk to knows that the hostage deal was a horrible, horrible blunder and a total capitulation to the enemy. We had these Hamas rats on the run, on the ropes, they were shivering in their tunnels, afraid to come out because they knew they'd get blown up. And now we're going to give them time to get out. And if we're going to get into the human element that the hostages are in Aza and we have to help them, well, what about the victims of these terrorists? You know that many of these Arab terrorists who were released returned to their homes and the families of these victims see these terrorists every day. They see the murderers of their families. And we know these terrorists are going to go back on the warpath. So what exactly is the cheshbon here? Who are you saving? It's almost like a PR move, and that's about it. Just like what Bibi did like 12 years ago with Gilad Shalit, when we released a thousand hardcore blood on their hand Arab terrorists for one soldier, Gilad Shalit, and afterwards these terrorists continue to kill Jews. So you're not saving Jewish lives. It's more like a PR move than anything else. We're encouraging further kidnappings because the Arabs end up getting what they want. And when Bibi did that Gilad Shalit deal, there wasn't that much pressure on him. This time around, there was tons of pressure on him, so you knew he would do it. And maybe such an approach sounds you know, cold and cruel, but you got to look at the whole picture. Jonathan Pollard was interviewed last week, and he was questioned about this hostage exchange, and this is what he said. Hamas's game plan, and the game plan of the Americans and the Europeans, is to drag out the hostage exchange process to such an extent that they wear us down, They will have the opportunity to reorganize, rearm, re-equip, reposition. And worst of all, that the Americans in particular and the Europeans will use the, the quiet to move in humanitarian aid representatives, which will prevent us from doing any military activity for fear of, of hitting a French doctor or an American aid worker. When we declared war, the first thing that the government should have done was declare a state of national emergency and told all of the hostage families, you will keep your mouths shut. You will not interfere in our management of this war. You will not be used by the international community or by our own leftists who manage the Shalit deal as a weapon against us. I was dead set against 
turning all these posters out were kidnapped with all these pictures of these poor people that were kidnapped. Why? Because each one of them was a poison dart at our ability to wage total war against our enemies. The anti-judicial reform movement has maneuvered itself, allowed itself to be maneuvered by the Americans into a position where they're waiting for the day after when the guns fall silent and they will make their move then politically. Look, we saved all the evacuees. We helped them. Look, we we spearheaded the hostage, uh, re- the return of the hostages. I'm not a cruel person by nature. I'm a realist. I once explained to people who were shocked initially by what I said about the hostages by using an analogy that we're taught. I was taught if you're the commander of a submarine, and that part of that submarine is damaged. The commander, in order to save his ship and save the remaining crew members, has to seal off the damaged part. And in the process, unfortunately, condemning all the men that are in that section to death for the greater good. These are decisions that we elect people to make. We do not elect people to use the unfortunate circumstances, the hostages, for example, as an excuse to buckle. That was Jonathan Pollard. And he was interviewed by Rabbi David Barchaim, who's a big Talmud Chacham. And he explained the Torah aspect of this because the Talmud has a lot to say about Pidyon Shvuim. We know Pidyon Shvuim, the redeeming of a captive, is a very, very big, big mitzvah, almost the highest mitzvah of them all. But that also has its limits. And Rabbi Bar Chaim explained how kidnapping was an industry back in the days of the Talmud. It was like a business. You had these pirates and they would kidnap people, including Jews. And there was a market price. They set a market price for each one and they would sell them. And every synagogue had its own, you know, kupa, had its own tzedakah fund to take care of this because it was expected that Jews would be kidnapped. But the rabbi set down that even though Pidyon Shvuim is a huge, huge mitzvah, there's a limit how much you're allowed to spend over the market price. Because they understood that if you overpay, you're just going to encourage further kidnappings. Now that's when you're talking business. All the more so when you're in a war situation, you have an enemy who uses hostages to dictate to us what we're going to do next, who uses the hostages to lead us around by the nose, who through the taking of hostages can proclaim victory and they blackmail us? Of course you don't sit down and deal with them. What have you done? You saved some hostages, but you've only encouraged that more hostages will be taken and more soldiers will be killed. So this whole thing is like a media shoot. Just like the Gilad Shalit deal, you're getting instant gratification, but in the long term, we're committing national suicide. Moving on to the Pasha Shavua. This past Shabbat, we read Pasha Vayetze. And in this Pasha, you really have an unbelievable prototype of what the exile is for the Jew, especially the American exile. You know, usually when you think of the classic exile experience, you're talking about Egypt, when the Jewish people went down to Egypt. But that's for the nation, for an individual. Really, the first exile we see is Jacob in our Pasha leaving Eretz Israel and going to the White House, Beit Lavan. The house of Lavan. And just like the Jew who came from Europe, you know, right off the boat, 
Jacob comes with absolutely nothing. What he's got is a good Yiddish cup, smart man, ethical, works very hard. As he tells Levan, he says, 20 years I work for you, and all the time your sheep and goats never lost their young. I never took a ram from your flocks. So he's honest, he's straight. He makes a lot of money for his boss. He's got a great work ethic, as he tells Levan, by day I was consumed by the scorching heat, and at night by the frost. Yeah, that's the classic Jewish experience in America when they came off the boat. And what else makes it so similar to the Jewish experience? The fact that Yaakov, he can't leave. Well, how did he get to Beit Levan in the first place? He had to leave the land of Israel through no fault of his own. And again, he arrives in Aram with Lavan, and he stays on for 14 years. And okay, you can understand that. He had to marry Rachel. He had to wait for things to come down with his brother Esau. But he knew that after Joseph is born, that it's time to go back to the land of Israel. Why? Because Joseph, and this is something we learn about living in this area of Shechem, Joseph is the anecdote to Esau. That's what it says in Chazal, that Esau will fall only to the sons of Rachel. So that's Yosef and Benjamin. So that's kind of a mystical concept. We won't get into that now. But the fact is, Yosef, he's the anecdote for Esau. And after those 14 years, after Joseph was born, Jacob was supposed to go back to the land of Israel. So that's what's supposed to happen. And what does the verse say? Et Yosef. And when Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Yaakov, and Yaakov said, El Levan, he said to Levan, Shalcheni, send me. And I'll go back to my land. So you see, Joseph's born. Yaakov wants to get back to the land of Israel. He's been in the Galut long enough. But the funny thing is, he doesn't go back. What happens? He starts to make a lot of money. He starts to make money for himself. Up to now, he's making money for his boss. Now he's going to stay on to make a fortune. And that's what he does. He got this whole thing going with the sheep the speckled sheep and the spotted sheep, looking at magic wands. He's using all kinds of wisdom from the Kabbalah and he is becoming a wealthy man. The American dream is his. And that's what the verse says. And the man, talking about Jacob, became tremendously wealthy. He had sheep and goats and slaves and camels and donkeys. He's made it. And because of that, he stayed outside the land of Israel at Levan's place, Another six years, another six years to make lots of money. He didn't go back right away. And now it's going to boomerang on him. And so what's the very next verse after we read that Jacob became spectacularly wealthy? It's just like this. And the sons of Levan heard about it. And they said, Jacob has taken everything belonging to our father. I said, he's making his fortune off our father's property. Oh, so now you have jealousy sneaking in there. Now that Jacob's making it, all that jealousy of the Jew comes out. He's cunning, he's wealthy, he's stealing from us. And the very next verse is something which is pretty scary. And Jacob saw the face of Lavan. And it wasn't the same face that he saw yesterday or the day before yesterday. And that's classic. The Jew and the Gentile can get along just fine when everything is going fine. And you'll see no signs of anti-Semitism. But when push comes to shove, it starts to come out. And Jacob looked at Levan and he didn't look like the same person he was before. Like in Europe in the Holocaust, the Jewish neighbor looked at his Gentile neighbor who he had gotten along with fabulously. 
But now things aren't going so good. And everybody in the end aligns with their own. So now it's a matter of his neighbor saying, you're a Jew and I'm a Gentile. That's exactly what happens to Jacob. He overstood his welcome because of what? Because of the money. That was the trap, the parnasa. And so what does it say after Jacob's face wasn't the way it was the day before? It says like this, And God said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers. What are you doing here? Go back to the land of Israel. Why'd you stay so long? And that's what Jacob does. He takes himself. He takes his tribes with him. And he leaves. And he finally gets the heck out of there. Back to the land of Israel. And that's the lesson for every Jew in the exile. You're overstaying your welcome. America's been good. But it's not the same America that it used to be. Everybody can see that. So take yourself. Take your tribes with you. And come to the land of Israel. And the thing is, I know that most American Jews, religious ones anyway, they feel it. They know that there's no future for them where they are. Religious Jews know that the exile is the exile and Eretz Israel is Eretz Israel and every exile imploded. So by saying this one won't because I live here, you're just flying in the face of historical precedent. So why don't the Jews leave? Because it's hard to leave. But that doesn't mean they think there's a future there. But what I don't understand is if you know there's no real future, don't you realize that you have to make the move? Why set down roots? You're only going to make it harder for your children then they're going to have to do it. So you make the move. It's a one generation move. You do it. It'll be hard for you. You got the language barrier. You have the Parnassa barrier. But for your kids who will already be here, you're going to make it a lot easier on them because they won't have to make the move. They're already going to be here. So it seems like I'm always leaving this broadcast with an Aliyah pitch, but that's okay. That's it for me today. And if you want to hear more of me, you can tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. We're going to cover the entire Bible, God willing. We're in the book of Samuel. We already finished the book of Kings. If you're interested in Judaism, the Bible is the very foundation of it. The sages tell us in Perkei Avot, For the first five years of your life, you learn just the written law, Bible. And then at 10 years old and after, then you start learning the oral law, Talmud, Mishnah. We got it all mixed up. We got our kids learning Mishnah at seven years old. And so you got to go back to the source, back to the Jewish Tanakh, which stands for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. That's the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So check that one out. We learn about the Jewish heroes. We learn what life was like before the exile, when Jews were normal, when they didn't drop leaflets over the enemy cities, when they didn't agree to a ceasefire after having their enemy on the ropes. Yeah, the Tanakh, when men were men, and not concerned with what will the world say? What will they say in Beit Lavan in the White House? They didn't have a ghetto exile complex because the Bible took place before the exile. And I'll be back next week, God willing, for more.